I want you to succeed at things that you never thought were possible, and I want you to fail at things that you never thought were possible. But I just want you to take that failure and move forward. I am your host, El Ray. Um, it's been a crazy week. As a matter of fact, yesterday my laptop died. All my memory in it died. I didn't know that. I had to get a new laptop and then figure out everything all over again. So let's make sure that we actually have audio today. Um, <clears throat> most of you guys all know where I'm from is Brookline, Massachusetts, which their public school system is supposed to be top 25 in the United States. I don't know where it is right now, but when I was there, it was in the top 15. Um, every time I tell people that story, what comes along with it is that I was pulled over by the police 50 times before I turned 21, and it's not a joke, and I didn't even drink until I was 25. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the education system and actually bring it on. One of the teachers that was at the school when I was there to talk a little bit about education challenges, kind of what he goes through. We can even talk a little bit of coronavirus as well. I will bring him in now. That is my main man, Dr. Dr. Adrian Mims. <laughs> How you doing tonight, sir? Hey, man, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Okay, how's everything? I'll say from the beginning, because I've talked to a lot of teachers lately, and I always ask them, what? Something about me stays with them, and I'm always like, I was bad as shit when I was in high school. So I'm like, what was it that stuck out more than anything? And um, it always has something to do with the way I answered them, or like they knew I was smart, but it just wasn't kind of applied the right way. So what, what's your memory of me? And then I'll, I'll, I'll go. I just remember you being this uh, young, trash-talking, athletic kid. Uh, you were always respectful. I liked you. Uh, you know, we used to play basketball uh, all the time. And uh, you were a great guy. But, you know, you, you, you were true to yourself, you know, and you still are true to yourself in the sense that, you know, what you're feeling and what you're thinking, you're going to express it. And uh, you're not going to sugarcoat it. So I think it's uh, quite interesting that you uh, have your podcast show and you're doing what you're doing, speaking truth to power. Surely, surely. I used to say all the time, I used to say it because, uh, I mean, life was very, very crazy for me when I was in high school. I mean, a lot of people don't really know this, but like when I was 13, my sister died of brain cancer. And then when I was a sophomore, my father who I was really just starting to meet again and talk to as a man, was supposed to meet me one day at school and then just died. So my sophomore year, I got zero credits, like none. Um, and I used to I used to wow. meet with John Anstey a lot, who's a big part of where I am now. And I used to say, listen, I want to be in Mr. Mim's class. I want to be in his class. But if I'm being <laughs> honest with myself, and I'm very good at math when I'm good at it, but if it's like with math, if you miss a day or two, you feel like you've lost and whereas I was kind of 
mismanaged my way through high school that I knew even if I was in your class, as respectful as I wanted to be of you, that um, I wouldn't have known that shit anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, here's, here's the thing. What a lot of people don't understand about me is, you know, um, I connect with kids like you. I grew up with kids like you. Um, you know, yeah, I have a doctorate, but, you know, I'm the first generation, um, one of the members of the first generation in my family uh, to go to college and graduate. And so, you know, I grew up uh, down south and, you know, I grew up in a, in a racially hostile and violent environment. Um, you know, I was born in 1971, but the high school that I attended didn't integrate until 1969. It's James F. Burns High School in uh, Spartanburg County, uh, South Carolina. So if you think about it, you, you, you think about Brown versus the Board of Education ruling, 1954. You think about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Five years later, they finally integrate. Somehow they didn't get the memo. <laughs> or they didn't want to read it. But um, I, I just have to give you that backdrop just so that you can understand that even though I was born two years after it integrated, Racism has a residual effect and impact. So by the time I made it to the high school, it was still just as racist and as crazy. And there were always fights. I mean, it was it was a battlefield sometimes. I always ask people this question because it's one of the craziest things ever um, in my mind. And it's, do you know when Mississippi abolished slavery? Do I know when they abolished slavery? Um, no. 2008. I heard something about Mississippi where they abolished, what was it? They uh, agreed to integrate a school. It was in the 2000s. It was like 2009 or 2010. So, so they had slavery on the books, on the state books, mm -hmm. right? Up until 2008. Yeah, they didn't. It was like they, they say it is like, oh, it was an oversight and we forgot that um, we had to do it. But I'm like, how do you forget something like that? Like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life that up to 2008 you just went, oh, yeah, I forgot. Let's abolish some slavery. Well, you know, they, 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 they do tend to forget some of these old laws. Can you imagine someone who's just like a voracious reader? who finds that law and then just finds a random black person and says, come on, you coming back with me. <laughs> yeah, and they have a good enough lawyer to beat it in court. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Listen, I don't doubt that somebody would do that for a second because those guys on both the bad end and the good end are the guys that find those oversights and you're like, oh, damn, like, thanks, man. But then, you know, there's the opposite of thanks, man, the guy that's trying to enslave you. <laughs> <laughs> you imagine grabbing some big brother that just finished playing for the 49ers or somebody <laughs> lives, in, lives in Mississippi say come on I need you to work in my field exactly <laughs> and then you get, and then you, you shoot him and he goes what you, what's going on here the law <laughs> yeah. gotta watch out for those stand your ground laws man someone can come up there and come up and smack you upside the head and you know, you defend yourself, then they shoot you, and then 
all of a sudden they get off. That's why I shoot them. I, I have a gun license <laughs> in Massachusetts in here. Oh man, you don't play around. No, I don't. I mean, this current social climate is a lot more serious than people kind of take um, understand because people just get angry for nothing. Like it's like I'm just walking down the street. You're angry at me the way I'm walking down the street, and I don't think for the most part that black people don't get angry like that. They don't like. I, I always tell the joke to people, and I said, if I'm standing in a parking lot and a black dude walks up to me angry, I probably did some shit. But if a white dude walks up to me angry, it could be anything. It could be like, remember when you littered 17 streets ago? And you're like, yo, whoa, what? what? <laughs> yeah. You know what? What, what was, was interesting? I grew up around guns. Everyone in on my street had guns. My family members had guns. My grandmother actually slept with a gun in her bed. And my, my dad, you know, he had guns all around the house. But I don't, I don't own a gun. I don't something about guns. I I, I don't like them, man. I, I you know, I grew up, and I was a, I was afraid to even carry a gun, even though, you know, I, I feared for my life a lot of the times because I knew that if I ever got jammed up in a situation, I was afraid that I'd, I'd lose my temper because when I was growing up, I had such a bad temper. I was afraid that I would do something stupid, so I didn't want to give myself that option because there was a rule that we had down south it was just like and it's probably a rule everywhere like if it's as soon as you pull out that gun you better shoot it and you better you better not miss because you just you're just gonna get blowback in one way or another and and, and it's interesting one of my friends um <laughs> he had a gun and it, i saw this evolution happen I saw guys, they'd fight, and then I see I would see guys, they, they'd fight, someone pull out a knife, and then i see guys fight, and then someone would pull out a gun, and they'd shoot the gun in the air. And then I start, started seeing people actually shooting at people. And, you know, a lot of my friends got shot. And, you know, <laughs> one of my friends, he took out a gun. You know, we'd go hang out go to the club or whatever, and then everybody go to the Waffle House. If anyone's been down yep. south, everyone about the <laughs> Waffle House. <clears throat> Nothing good happens at the Waffle House after 2, 2 30. Nothing so, good happens there now, including their food. <laughs> so, so he's at the Waffle House. He gets into this, you know, altercation or whatever. He takes his gun out, shoots in the air, and um, next thing you know, he gets shot. And you know, I just saw so many examples of it's just like, nah, I'm good. It's it's almost, I, to be honest with you, like, it's almost when I got my license, because obviously I never did carry a gun illegally. I got, I went through the legal protocol for everything. And when I got it, because of the training for it that you go through beforehand, because in the South, it's like, here's a gun and let's go shoot some bottles. But in Massachusetts, it's a lot harder to get a gun. Like, you have to go through an entire safety class, understand how to use it. You know, most people that shoot a gun for the first time, they don't realize, like, if you ain't got no damn hearing protection, you're going to be like, what just happened? So every time people watch, like, oh, yeah. shoots and stuff on TV, they think it's all everything. TV changes a lot of it. They think people explode when you shoot them. And I'm like, no, they can keep coming at you. And But when I finally did get it um, and got the training, 
I felt a lot more disciplined as to how I carried, and I was able to look at other situations where people were like the the thing the other. I think that that shit was in South Carolina. The, the two people on their front lawn with the gun and the lady that was holding it like this with her finger on the trigger. Mm-hmm. It was um that was just completely undisciplined way to carry a weapon. Um, but but moving along to basically <coughs> what my memory is of you. Um, obviously the number one anybody that, that that was with me that was with the, at the freshman campus and, and after that was Mims can dunk and he will dunk <laughs> on you and then he has braces so he's a nice guy <laughs> Mims has braces so bra- the braces threw us off I was like he can dunk on us but he's got braces too how is that how does he do it? <laughs> like, like braces is supposed to. I put, the acrylic, I put the acrylics on, and y'all can still see my braces. <laughs> That's why I did the acrylics. Uh, I said, I don't even it know how worked. you can jump with those braces. Those are supposed to stop your your jumping ability. But that same, I, to be honest, the fact mm. that you kind of took that from me is, is kind of a reoccurring thing that I hear um, about me. It's more of a, and and it comes from not really understanding. The difficulties that I was kind of facing in my life, which is fair, I wasn't um, telling anybody that at the time. So teachers just looked at me like it was whatever. Like this motherfucker doesn't apply himself at all, and he's here. And to be there was a lot. Just to get there was a lot. That, that's what most people don't. Know. And people say it a lot about inner city kids. It's like you don't <laughs> understand how hard it is for them to get to school. You know what I'm saying? And then after that, they got to refocus themselves and be thinking and saying certain things and. And so on and so on, but um, always respectful. I mean, all, always respectful of everybody. And even when we were there, yeah. when we when we moved to the to the big school, I never felt any type of animosity. And the your stature means a lot. Going further, I don't know. Um, it, it demands respect almost. <laughs> it's like I'm there. I'm dunking on you on the court, and also I'm smart. So what you gonna do? So you gotta you gotta make sure that you got all your ducks in a row to come at you um, the right way. Um, what what are you kind of doing now? What's your current job title now? Um, can I can I can I respond to something that you said earlier that um, I just want to share with you and your listeners because maybe the, some of the listeners are, are educators. Mm-hmm. Quick about that, and, I, and then I'll tell you what I'm doing right now um, about how you came to school and no one really knew everything that was going on with you, right? You know, everyone is carrying some baggage and, you know, they're dealing with something. Um, Real quick story. So, when I first started teaching, you know, I would go and I would observe teachers. I'd look at what the teachers did well, the things that they didn't do well, and I was kind of crafting my own identity. You know, being a good teacher means being authentic. But I'd always take little bits and pieces from teachers that I thought would make me better. And so the, a couple of things that I saw teachers do that I said I would never do. <clears throat> One is lock a door to my classroom if a student is late. Uh, I saw teachers lock their doors and students come and they couldn't get in. The other thing is um, humiliate kids to do what was right or to follow their rules or policies. And one of the things that they would do is you come in late, they'd write your name on the board, right? 
not knowing why you, you're coming late. So I said, you know, I'm never going to do that stuff, right? So when my first year of teaching full-time, there was a girl who came late in my class almost every single morning. It was, uh, I think it was an 8.30 class. And I pulled her aside and I said, excuse me, I said, why are you coming to my class late? She said, well, I don't really want to talk about it. And I just left it alone because it was something that told me, it was just like, okay, there's something going on. It was the beginning of the school year too. I said, maybe she'll tell me later. So about a month or so went by. She was still coming in late, um, pretty frequently. And then I come to my desk one morning and there's a envelope there and she leaves me a letter. And so I read the letter and what she says is, is that she tells me the reason why she's late all the time. And she tells me the story about her mother who was like this track star. And, you know, after her mother stopped running track, she became a health and fitness teacher and she became a track coach. She talked about how her mother taught her how to ride a bike around the track, you know, using the lines and stuff and how they used to run together. And then her mother was uh, stricken with MS. And so, she had to start taking care of her mother, but she also had a brother who um, was was challenged and, and disabled, and she had to assist and help him. So she had to get up in the morning, take care of her mother, take care of her brother, drive her brother to school, and make it to my class on time. And so I thought to myself, I said, wow, what if I had written her name on the board? What if I had locked her out of my classroom? You know. It's, it's, she was drowning, what I would have done would have been the equivalent of throwing someone who's drowning a brick. And so that's not who we're supposed to be as human beings. It's not who we're supposed to be as teachers. But when I left Brookline and I got a chance to say my farewell, I told a story and I actually read the letter that the girl left me. And I told him, I said, I want you to think about the policies and the practices and think about who they're for because your policies and practices should always be there to build and uplift kids and not for your own self-interest so I just wanted to share that because when you said that it just really uh, triggered that story um, yeah. but I mean I think right. um, and, and I mean obviously that's a, that's a great story and I, I know it firsthand because I was going through it firsthand um, I think and just in case I forgot to tell y'all, um, if you like what you hear, you can listen on Spotify. I set all this shit up, by the way, that y'all see down here. That's me. I learned how to do this in the last three weeks. You can't see it yet, Mims. You'll see it later. <laughs> um, yeah, listen on Spotify. Listen on Apple Podcasts. Also, the video will be up on YouTube tomorrow at some point. Um, I think that... Anyway, what were you saying? You're, you're, so what... Where are you at now? What are you doing now? Because I think, well, actually, let me stop you there. Because what I, what I was going to say is Brookline, I think, thinks that everybody's already supposed to be at such a high level that they don't care if they peg you down. So there, that goes for the police, the fire department, uh, the the schools, whatever else is there. They they I knew when I was in, when I was at Lincoln in, in seventh grade, there was somebody who already took the SATs. So you're in competition with that. So even some of my minority friends that went through Metco now that have their kids at Brookline, I specifically tell them, 
take your kids out before high school and put them back in Boston. Because if you put them back in Boston, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's more money for them. Because they're not in competition anymore with what is a Brookline kid. I knew somebody that was rich that was talking about, I'm trying to get all this financial aid. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> what you mean you're trying to get all this financial aid? Like, you already got everything you need. But if you take them out of Boston, they get that base education of Brookline. And then they go to Boston and they're a superstar. So now when you're a superstar, the money comes back in for you. And it also is a confidence booster. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword, man. I mean, you know, I, I, here's the thing. Brookline, <clears throat> so many kids at Brookline apply to Yale, Princeton, some of the best colleges in the country, right? And these colleges are only going to accept a certain number of kids from Brookline to go to Harvard, Yale. So it does make the competition a lot stiffer than if you were to go to school, Randolph High School, right? And you were a superstar there. Um, it's, it's almost like taking LeBron James and putting him in the CBA. You know what I mean? It, it, he, he crushed put him it. In, put him in um, college basketball. <laughs> put him in college basketball, yeah. Uh, so, um, but here's the thing. It's, it's really hard for kids and it's interesting, interesting the way you framed it, though, Ray, because you said you get your base in Brookline, and then you have your base, and then you move to the somewhere I see the, I somewhere see the base in Boston. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. You know, I've seen kids, because, you know, during my time there, there were students who were in the Metco program who got kicked out for various reasons, and they'd go into, the, go, go into Boston. And every now and then I bump into those kids, and I remember bumping into one of these kids. He was funny. This kid failed almost every single class, and I ran into him, and he was just like, "Yo, Mims, I'm tutoring." <laughs> oh shit! Well, send your kids to me. He's like, oh, I'm tutoring. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god. You're tutoring, okay. <laughs> so it's it's it's, it's interesting. It, I mean, the unfortunate thing is is that your zip code does determine your access and opportunity. Um, you know, there there's I, I have I have mixed feelings about you know the Metco program, which you know some of your viewers might not know what that is, but it's a busing program that they have here in. Um, Massachusetts, where they bus kids in Boston to uh, wealthier suburbs, um, that program helps a lot of kids. But for some kids, it it is is not a good fit. It's definitely not for everyone. You have kids round trip who travel three hours. Can you imagine traveling three hours round trip, getting up at five thirty in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, just to get a good education? And then what happens, you know, when you go to some of these towns, they're so wealthy, you know, the average, the, the median income in some of these towns is like around $2 million. And so when they see you, if your, you know, parents or your father, your mother, you know, they're not like somebody, you know, high profile or whatever, they know you're in the Metco program. So they know you're busy. Um, so you, sometimes you're treated like an outsider. But not only that, 
you're tracked into lower level classes. So <laughs> when you get tracked into these lower level classes, in some cases, you might still be better off than some students who go to school in mm -hmm. Boston. But on the other hand, you might not be. And so the thing is, is that I've seen kids who go to these suburban schools and it, it, and it devastates them in so many ways. I mean, socially, because they feel like outcasts and they're dealing with so much stuff going on and then, you know, traveling round trip. And then they come out thinking that they really learned something and they got an inferior education. But uh, I tell you what was interesting, though, when, when Trump got elected, the kids who, you know, I work with in my program, some of them live in Boston and go to school in Boston. Some of them live in Boston and they in the Metco program. The kids in the Metco program, they talked about how they went to school the next day. Kids wearing MAGA hats, kids, you know, making racist comments and kids in Boston weren't really dealing with that. So now you have the academic piece that you're trying to deal with in those suburban schools. And now you're trying to deal with this, uh, this hostile, uh, in this hostile environment. Yeah, it's um, just added to the stress of what you're already facing in your life, basically. Yeah. I, um, it's funny because I think a video came out, it was like three or four years ago, with a bunch of Brookline kids on a video saying, nigga, nigga, nigga. And somebody was like, Brookline's racist. And I said, let me explain something to you. I was like, if Brookline kids are saying that, you don't want to see an actual Charlestown, a Walpole, because the Brooklyn kids are saying that, then this is going to be... Because when I was younger, like, we we used to hang at people's houses, like, you know, younger white girls, and their parents was cool as hell with it. Like, it wasn't, like, crazy. So it wasn't over the top as to seeing some of the stories I've heard in this other towns. And uh, as far as the Meckle thing as well, it's funny because I um, I used to get into arguments with Meckle kids because they would say, oh, I'm from Dorchester, which is, you know supposed to be a poor area in some ways it is but some ways it isn't so i'm i'm i live in brookline i grew up in brookline but i grew up fucking poor and it's brookline so i can't be poor right <laughs> but no you i'm arguing with a kid that's got both his parents and got a car and i got a family full of drug addiction and i'm trying to make it to school with no goddamn money you know what i'm saying and and they're telling me like oh i'm from i'm well, I'm from over here, and I, I'll fight you. And I'm like, I'm poor for real. Like, I got nothing to lose. I don't think you understand what's going on. And it's funny you said that about the gun thing, because I used to fight all the time. I used to fight all the time, probably up to 14, until I saw that, and it was like, I'm not trying to get shot because of somebody's ego and because of somebody's pride. If you want to fight, we can fight. I have no problem losing. I have no problem winning. But when you feel some type of way forever is... is um kind of the issue that comes about with me even now where it's like I just kind of avoid confrontation with my mind and see it coming to fruition and see when you hit somebody's insecurity by accident and they want to get all upset and it's just like I don't have the time for this I got family I got stuff like that and, and, and speaking of what you have kids now oh yeah man I have a son he's uh going into his junior year at Bridgewater State and I have a daughter uh, who's going into the high school? She's a freshman. Brookline okay. High School. Yeah. Nice. What? Um. So, what is your current job title now? What are you doing now? Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of different things, man. And I, I this is the happiest I've ever been professionally with the work that I do. 
Um, I, I left Brookline in 2013, created this uh, math program that uh, that's called the Calculus Project. It's an extension of my dissertation, and the program uh, that I created was very successful at helping black, Latino, and uh, economically disadvantaged students excel in mathematics. And so I had an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. Um, a philanthropist who was also running a nonprofit in New York called Replications uh, approached me through a mutual friend and came and visited the program and spent the whole day uh, speaking with the students, teachers, and the parents. And at the end of the day, he said, hey, I want to fund you. I want to like help you expand this you know, across the country. And so, um, you know, we had to work out the deal, the details and everything. And so um, the numbers were right. So I left. And so I worked, partnered with him doing this work for two years. And it wasn't a good fit. And I, I left and um, started a program at BU uh, called the Calculus Project Leadership Academy. I was still expanding the program in various school districts. I was working in Orlando, Florida. Uh, probably not too far from you, Orange County Public Schools. Um, and I replicated the program there. So it, it, I replicated it in all of their middle and high schools. And so um, I would fly back and forth between Orlando and Boston for three years. And so um, what I did, I uh, partnered with, helped me with this because I was a one-man show uh, doing this. So it was insane. Uh, and I got a team behind me. And so I also ended up starting it as a nonprofit too. So this is my uh, fifth year with the Calculus Project and Leadership Academy. And I, you know, serve about 150 students. All of them are black and Latino. All of them are from Boston or the Boston metro area. I bring them onto the campus of Boston University as early as eighth grade, teach them advanced mathematics and get them prepared to take calculus so that they can do whatever they want to do in life and uh, also be leaders too. We focus on leadership, we focus on entrepreneurship, we focus on financial literacy. We teach them everything. Um, we teach them about the books, we teach them about life, we also teach them about their history too and uh, really give them everything they need to really go out and be change agents. That's, man, that's amazing. I mean, when I when I started this, I thought like everybody I'm sure that starts a podcast, their dream is like, oh, I'm gonna get like a superstar on here. And one of the biggest things for me is that I have a very very good network. Um, basically on my social media, it, it it's not necessarily like a superstar, but everybody is doing some great great things. Um, I I had a Facebook post a couple weeks back that said 80 percent of my friends grew up with food stamps, 80% of my friends now own their own homes, my minority friends. Um, so to be able to show my minority friends in a, in, in a light of success, you know, with diplomas, with doctorates, and, and still being able to think the way you're thinking, is it, it, it holds so much value that I don't think you understand. Um, their uh, black males make up 2% of the teachers in the United States. So um, when you go from that, I'm like, 
that's like such a small amount compared to how many black kids there is. I mean, did you have any black teachers when you were growing up? Man, I can count them on one hand. <laughs> I didn't have very many. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll tell you, there, there are two who were very transformative for me. One is uh, Miss Sears. She was my sixth grade teacher. And Mr. Dogan, he was my sixth grade teacher. And Mr. Dogan taught me math. And he was an interesting cat. That dude would drink coffee the whole class. I always saw him. He was drinking coffee and making, running off worksheets. That's all he did, run off math worksheets. He had, he had, he probably had about 20 pounds of math worksheets. And so he saw that I was pretty good at it. And he just kept giving me the worksheets. He was just like, here, finish this, finish this. So he would let me work ahead of the class. Um, and so that built my confidence. And, you know, I, I didn't necessarily love math. I, I mean, here's what's interesting. I have kids right now in my program who hadn't even graduated from high school who I paid for them because they, they, they were killers in math. Like these kids, like if I could create like a special ops team, they'd be SEAL Team 6 in mathematics. That's how they, they took the Massachusetts teachers exam for middle school math and passed it while they were in high school. Now. People think, oh, they just passed the teacher's test for middle school math. No, it has calculus on it. But also, only 60% of first-time adult test takers passed it in 2018. So I got these kids who are black and Latino in high school who crushed it. And so I didn't set out to create and, 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 and cultivate kids to do that. What I wanted to do, first of all, I just didn't want them to fear math. And then I, I, I wanted them to be successful at math. And I wanted them to have fun. So the thing is, when you're successful and people are celebrating, now it's fun. Yeah. When you start getting those good grades and you start getting the accolades and the recognition, now you're like, I'm good at this. And I like the way it makes me feel. So you know what? I might just teach math. So I got kids now. I got I got one young lady who graduated in the first cohort of my program who now works with me in a nonprofit. She got a degree in mathematics from Bridgewater State. I got another uh, student who is uh, going to Leslie who's getting her degree in mathematics. I got kids going to Yale. I got kids going to Harvard. I got kids going to MIT. I'm not saying that to brag because they got in because of the other courses that they did well. In. But here's the thing. The one course that keeps students from excelling and doing well is mathematics. You always have kids. They can write well. They can do social studies. They can you know, do humanities well. But if you know what, if you struggle with math, you're going to struggle with science. You're not getting into the most competitive schools in the country unless you're well-rounded in all of those mm -hmm. courses. And they're sure as hell not giving you any money. So I'm building kids up where they're usually their weakest and what usually disqualifies them. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is that some of the most competitive schools 
if you don't have calculus on your transcript, they're not going to accept you. Yeah. You're not going to make it past the admissions door. So. Yeah, I mean, you. I've seen a lot of um, minorities as of late say stuff like, oh, I don't want to post this on social media or I don't want to brag. And a big part of my podcast is so that you can brag because we need part of your uplifting in mathematics is the same thing as, as the uplifting of, of us being able to show um, these kids that you can do it. I didn't know I could do math until I was in college. And um, I was in, I was in, I was at Dean and I was with a tutor and the, and I, I was like, I'm just not getting this, but that was the same thing. It was me missing something. And then when he saw how I calculated it, he was like, what are you doing? He was like, if you pay attention, you could be at Harvard, not understanding where my life is. So yeah, I think, and, and even now, as I become an adult, I have people that call me and they go, well, how does this work? Because you're one of the smartest guys I know. And I'm like, you have a master's degree from, like, Northeastern. Like, what is, it, what, what is this called? I don't even understand. So for me, it takes a while for me to kind of get. And now I'm starting to really come in to a confidence level that I didn't have there. And it comes back to exactly, like, what you're saying. You, you damn well deserve to say that you had a part in that. And... Um, kids should be coming back and thanking you for that because whereas some people don't see that in them and, and, and I, I'll segue that from from that to when I was in high school I had a lot of struggles with middle-aged white women teachers and um, I didn't even take this into account until I saw somebody speaking and saying that that's 85% of the teaching population so now you're going to throw this lady in a room with, with me after you were basically trying to keep those two people apart for, you know, 300 years, you can even say up to now, and, and she's supposed to be able to understand anything about what I'm going through, what my life is like on a daily basis, and it just comes down to being so black and white where it's like, do the work. It's like when you go to your doctor and he's like, lose some weight, and you're like, no shit. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, if I could, do, if I could focus, then I would. If my life wasn't in shambles, who knows what would happen? And I just try to piece together uh, uh, in certain aspects of my life now to um, be able to explain to the younger kids kind of what I went through then. I, I always tell kids when I talk to them, I'm telling you what I'm telling you now, not so you can be me but you can be better than me because you can circumnavigate stuff that I ran into way earlier. So if you take right. it into account, you're going to be great way faster. Just don't forget about me if I'm still broke. <laughs> uh, which I guess that'll lead me to my next question and we'll kind of get in, in, into your story. And, and my question would be, do you think that Brookline in general and not just the school system, do you, have you lived in Brookline? No. Alright. Do you think Brookline has a racism problem? <laughs> Do I think yeah. it has? <laughs> Man, America has a racism problem and every town within America has a racism problem. It's just manifested in different ways. You know, I grew up in the South. I mean, I could see racism a mile away because they'd be driving a, you know, they were driving a pickup truck with a big Confederate flag in the back. And the crazy thing is, you know, They'd say, hey, how you doing, Bo? How you doing? They like us. Some of them. 
And it was the weirdest thing. They never looked at that Confederate flag. Some of them did. Um, they were looking at Confederate flag and they just had pride and it was all about heritage because their great great grandfather died and lost and I, I mean it's the stupidest thing I ever saw but you know that that was their thing and they never they, they never really thought about it as what the South was really fighting for they were fighting for the right to own people to brutalize people to enslave mm -hmm. people um, they just saw it as a heritage symbol. So it was it was just a weird thing, man. They, they'd speak to you. Sometimes they'd eat lunch with you. And we didn't, we didn't beef with them because they were carrying that flag necessarily. But when they come incorrect and they'd say something that they're not supposed to say, uh, you know, something racist or whatever, okay, now it's on. Now you're going to have to deal with it. Um, what I found moving... I've, I've had an interesting life because I spent half of my life growing up in the South and the other half of my life up here in, in Boston. And um, it's just you have covert versus, versus overt racism. Surely. That's not, it's still there, you know. <clears throat> it's just, it's like Malcolm X said, they traded in those sheets for police uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> they traded. They traded in that pickup truck for I don't know. Um, what do they drive up there? Uh, goddamn IROC Z. Um, <laughs> I remember yeah, those it, it's, it's, it, it is so. It, it wasn't until social media came about where you were able to point at your computer and go, "Oh, that's the reason I didn't get that job." Now I see why. Because you think like that. Um, There's a funny story in Brooklyn. A good, very, very good friend of mine. I've known him since I was three years old. Um, I was in Florida and he was driving Uber and he called me. And um, he had just parked in front of where we grew up, which is, you know, the projects on the end by BU. And he goes, it was like negative four degrees. And he goes, yeah, the cops are, um, cops just drove by me. They're going to come fuck with me. And I was like, man, they ain't going to mess with you. I was like, leave it on speakerphone. But I already know, like, I had dealt with it so much that I'm like, mm, maybe he's right. So they drove around and they parked right next to him. And, and, and the cop was like, hey, how you doing today? Um, and he was like, I'm doing fine. I heard the whole thing on speakerphone. Somebody, it's not even like telephone. I heard it verbatim. And, the, and he goes, the cop goes, where are you going? He goes, I live here. He goes, well, I don't live here. My mom lives here. I'm going to visit my mom. The cop goes, oh, where, where is she? What's her address? And my friend goes, I don't feel comfortable telling you that. So then the cop says, okay, well, there's a five-minute idle law in Brookline, which I know damn sure that Eddie's ice cream truck was out there for more than five minutes every day. <laughs> so he goes, okay, well, I got five minutes then. And the cop goes, no, you got three minutes now, and leaves. And my friend was so angry that it, it, I could hear it in his voice. It almost brought him to tears. I know him that well that I was like, I can feel the hurt in your voice. And... um. <clears throat> my friend, um, you know him, his name is Mustafa. He is uh, an Olympic athlete with a master's degree in engineering from Dartmouth, which is an Ivy League school, and basically just got minimized down to nigga in a car. I know I know who you're talking about because he has, he has a lot of siblings, yeah. too. And all of them went yeah. to Ivy League schools. But yeah. 
It's a smart. But as simple as that, you can be minimized down to just a dude in a fucking car. No matter what you accomplish, you were, he's, he's a Brookline legend. You are a Brookline legend. And this cop just minimized you down to nothing. So it's almost like a, I don't care what you accomplish. I don't care what you are. And, um, because you're black. And with that, um, I kind of want to move forward into what your story is. And all I got was the most paraphrased version of it. And the paraphrased version that I heard was, um, Mr. Mims tried to be the headmaster. And they told him that. Brookline's not ready for a black headmaster. Yeah. So, if you could give me a more <laughs> descriptive story of it up to exactly what happened. You can you you can write that story on a on a post it note and don't even have to put it in the Brookline tag. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. Uh, you know what? His This is almost like a separate podcast, man, to really just go deep and just let you know, you know how things are so here's what I, I want people to understand and that's this um, just because black people aren't going around telling their stories about incidents of racism it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and you know you know after what happened to George Floyd that was just like the damn bursting right and everybody is just saying, yeah, that happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. They talk about all this. It's like the Me Too movement for black people. Experience. It's, it's, yeah, it's like a Me Too movement, right? Well, you know, I was experiencing issues around racism long before I, you know, applied for Headmaster in Brookline. And it wasn't, you know, someone, you know, calling me out of my name or some. I, I never went into the office and there was a noose on my desk or nothing like that, right? But I'll tell you what, <clears throat> it's very, very subtle. So I'll give you an example. Uh, because I was uh, working for the, for the town, right, as an educator, your salary is always published in the newspaper. So there's no one who can outwork me, right? So I'm working during the school year. I'm also running summer school, like, I'm heavily involved in a lot of different things and I'm doing work outside of my job description. And so I get a nice check. It goes in the paper. All of a sudden, people are making jokes about, oh wow, saw you in the paper, Mims. You're making good money, guy. You know. As if you didn't earn it. As if it's like some black thing that made you that money. If I heard it, you know, it's just like, here, you just, you just give it. And, you know, people making these jokes, and I never heard these jokes mentioned to other people who were white, who made more than I did. It was just like, man, you kind of coming out of your lane, buddy, you know? And so I was very sensitive to that because of growing up in the South where my uncle was always working overtime. And then when he got a nicer truck than the supervisor, then they cut off his overtime. Mm -hmm. So I come culture where you never let people know how much money you make and you just keep to yourself and you, you you keep everything low but keep your head on swivel so anyway you know there were a lot of incidents and there were a lot of things going on in Brookline that a lot of people don't know about and um, I'd always speak up um, one thing about growing up the way I did um, I don't fear any man 
you know, you're, you're, you're a person, you, you put on your pants, you know, one leg at a time, just like me. If you have a gun, I'm afraid of the gun, but I'm not afraid of you. Um, and so I if I see something, <laughs> if, 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 if I see something that's, that's wrong, I'm going to speak on it. And so I'm not this docile black person who's going to roll along to get along. I'm not going to be loud. I'm not going to be disrespectful, but I am going to let you know that I disagree with certain things. And I always spoke up and it made people uncomfortable. Right. So and, and I was constantly checking people on things that they were doing that were wrong. So when, you know, I had the opportunity to apply for the position, I was a little reluctant to apply, but I went ahead and did it. I knew that I had run ins with the superintendent. And I knew that probably the last thing he wanted was for me to get that position. And some people in the school, the last thing they wanted me to do was run that school. Mm-hmm. And I, some of them, they were worried about, man, Adrian becomes the, the headmaster. If he becomes a principal of the school. He saw me right on the board one time. He's going to hook he, he, he might, he might fight. He might No more locked me. doors. No more locked doors. But you know what? I, I, would say, I don't fire people. People fire themselves. You know, I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong and I'm going to help you to do what's right. And then if you choose not to do it, then you just chose to get fired. So that's just me. But anyway, I went through the process just like everyone else. And um, but here's the here's the thing. Here's how here's how I think I have to explain really how mm-hmm. things work. So in Massachusetts, the superintendent can hire whomever he wants to. Um, that's his responsibility. He doesn't have to come up with these elaborate processes for hiring people, getting like these multiple committees, et cetera, et cetera. But superintendents do that because they want to feel like they want to create a process where all stakeholders have a seat at the table to decide who's going to be running this high school. So the, the whole process was, was rigged from the beginning. Um, I found that out. I also found out that um, he, you know, put certain people on certain committees who would vote against me advancing to the next phase. And so what happened was, even though he did that, after I interviewed, I still got moved on to the next phase. And so that plan didn't work. And so what he did was just remove my name. He just pulled it. And so the the thing is, is that you can't create a process and establish a process and then not follow it. And so had he just went ahead and hired, you know, Doug Holman, who, who got the job, he could have done that. Where he made a mistake was creating a process and then changing exactly. I mean that that'd be the yeah. difference between South Carolina they would have just left the noose on your desk in the beginning and said don't apply for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I still would have applied <laughs> I mean that's a, I'm looking at I'm looking at the live comments now and I got a couple of because because Sarah Cornell's in there and I'm gonna actually attempt to bring her on next week so we can actually extend this education thing it says love you mr. Mims and then we got somebody else that said people like this are true heroes respect and love it so I guess continue continue with that story and kind of how we got to the point that we got to 
Yeah, so what happened, um, I had someone on the committee came to my office in the morning and told me that based on the conversations that she heard from people on the committee, Brookline, Brookline isn't ready for a black principal, a black headmaster. That was the title, headmaster. And I said, okay. And then I had other people on the committee come and talk to me and said, it wasn't a fair process. It was rigged. I said, okay. All right. So long story short, I mean, I could write a, I could write a book on this uh, about how it came to this point. I got a lot of information. I got a lot of evidence. I got a lot of testimonials and went to one of my attorneys that I had from a previous lawsuit that I won. See, man, I've been discriminated against so many times and see what people don't know. You got that boy ready to go. (laughs) No, man, let me tell you. You you laugh. I, I know police officers. I know lawyers. If you're black, you better know some lawyers. You better know some mm-hmm. police officers. I even know some firemen too. Even if <laughs> oh shit, you, you got you listen. I, I I know two. I know the firemen and the police officer that both got racist shit going on in Brooklyn that had to sue everybody. Man, you better know. Hey, you better know some people. So, um, so this attorney that who won another case that I was involved in of discrimination, I went to her and she wasn't really practicing anymore. She had become like a partner in a firm and she was kind of moving in a different direction. She turned me on, introduced me to this other attorney who I love to death, man, Nancy Shalevsky. You know, she's this tiny white woman who probably weighs 90 pounds and is like tougher than Mike Tyson. I mean, she's a killer. And so I'm telling her this and she ends up taking my case and long story short, um, you know, Brookline ends up settling the case because, you know, as man, look, as long as I got truth on my side, I'm not worried. Can I match them dollar for dollar? Hell no, because I went broke fighting that, mm-hmm. you know. But I got my money back. Um, I got what I wanted out of it uh, ultimately, and things happen for a reason. Um, had I stayed there now and I was still there. I'd think I'd be miserable. I wouldn't be as, you know, as excited about the work that I'm doing right now. But here's here's a one thing I want to clear up that people have a misunderstanding uh, about. People think I sued and I won because I didn't get the job. That's not that's not what happened. I sued because and I, and I won because I was supposed to be a finalist <laughs> and he changed the process and stripped that opportunity from me that in addition to some other things that were going on that I had documented helped create that narrative people think that if you're mistreated and you're black that you can just say that it's racism no people don't understand that when you file a discrimination lawsuit, those are the toughest lawsuits to win because you have to establish a pattern. You have to establish a pattern of racism. Yeah, you have to be able to prove definitively that it was race-driven. Right. And and that it was a pattern, too. I mean, you know, that that's tough. And I was able I was able to do that. 
and um, hey, you know, I what what was crazy about it is, you know, my kids go to my son graduated from Brookline High School, my daughter's going to Brookline High School. There's some good people at that high school, uh, but just like in any organization, you have some uh, bad actors and some people who don't act in you know in a very responsible way yeah sarah's in the live she said she's there now so she said send, send your daughter her way she'll take care of her <laughs> um and the, even with her when we get into when we go forward i'll ask her just kind of about that disconnect from teaching but sarah i mean we went to school together she thinks differently than a lot of other people in terms of the struggles that people might be going through and so on um i mean to be honest at the time we had a lot of black teachers that were at the school. I mean, you had Cawthorn, you had Corey, you had Thomas, you had Mr. Credo, you had Mr. Cody, who's one of the best teachers I've ever met. And Ms. Mr. Who? Mr. Cody. Oh, Mr. Cody. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Oh, and, then, and then you had John Cooper and, and uh, Metco. And actually, I'm, I'm looking to get in touch with him because... Um, Big yeah. John. I, I haven't seen him anywhere. I haven't seen him on social media, nothing. I, somebody need to give me his number because I want to just call him and, 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 and actually explain to him a story about when he talked to me. Because I tell, I tell people the same way that John Cooper told me when I was in high school. And as I told you, like I was going through stuff, so I really wasn't ready. But John Cooper sat me down one time because John asked him to. And one of the biggest um, things that, that you kind of miss from Metco to me, like me being poor, poor, and some Mecco students being poor and some of them not, but being bust in, is they had almost like a, a safety net for them where they had to maintain a grade point average and they had tutors there and they had aspects there and I didn't have none of that shit. So when I'm like, yo, I'm poor, poor too, like help me. John Cooper sat down with me one day and he said, um, he said, uh, what you going to do next year? It was my senior year. And I said, I, I'm thinking about, you know, doing a private school year because I'm still thinking about football. Like, like. And um, he's like, okay, let's do it. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, let's do it right now. And I was bullshit. I said, I don't know. Like, I got to think and then I got to go. I mean, whatever excuse I had to make at the time. But when I go back and I look at the situation, I became that person. And people look at me and they go, damn, every single time you talk about something, you do that shit. Um, but I had to mature to go back and see it in a way that a level that I go, damn, way that John Cooper came at me like that, it was so, it was like, forget all the shit that you're about to say and all the excuses you're about to make. Let's do that shit right now. Let's fill it out right now. And that's how I am right now. And that's when I can see now as an adult. And now I don't mean just talking to kids. I mean talking to other adults. Do the shit right now then. And they're like, oh, well, I got to, and then down the street, and I got to go over there. And I'm like, listen, man, excuses is over. I don't play those type of games because I'm really serious about winning this life thing and I'm really serious about passing on this winning to the younger generation so they understand how that um, is supposed to be played out so I mean back to um, the Brookline story was was it ever was any, anything ever brought up about your qualifications and do you personally feel that you were qualified for the position yeah I mean I guess I was I actually overqualified for the position because you know they said doctorate preferred and I had my doctorate plus I had you know a lot of experience now do you need a doctorate to run this school no because 
some of the smartest people I know don't have a doctorate. Um, but, you know, it's, I look at having a doctorate just like anything else, you know, it's just like having your, your, your hall pass. It's like having your key, you know, this legitimizes me or whatever, however you want to look at it. But, um, you know, given the amount of time that I've been there, accomplishments that I had there, you know, um, at the very least, there's no way I should not have been a finalist. Now, am I going to say, I should be headmaster? No, nah, I'm not going to say that. But I damn sure know I should have been the finalist. So, um, and, and then let the chips fall where, the, where they may, you know. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think probably one of the things that I get annoyed with more than anything, and I hear people say this all the time, they say, oh, you're trying to play the race card. And I'm just like, wait a minute, listen, that just shows your ignorance because you know what? Race is a social construct, and race was invented by white people. It was their social construct. And so if I am playing a race card, which I'm not, which I think is stupid, I didn't create the deck because <laughs> black people didn't own anything. So if, if, if you create the deck and we play cards, and I beat you with your cards. I'm playing the race card. No, you created the deck. I just beat you at your own game. Yeah, I because mean, you gotta understand that within the year that slavery um, got abolished, that's the same amount of time that the union got created. So it even there was another deck on top of the deck, and, and and just to say, hey, Candace Owens, hey, Candace Owens, they said Brookline's <laughs> not ready for a black headmaster. How do we get over that? That has nothing to do with your education. That has that the word black. I dare anybody that's watching this right now, any white dude, and I don't mean a fucking random club that you went to in the middle of the hood somewhere. Tell me ever a time in your life that somebody told you, oh, Paul Epstein just came in. Perfect. I didn't even know he was good. Hey, I'll take it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oh, I man. said, I dare you tell oh, me man. like that somebody told you, hey, I don't think so-and-so is ready for a white so-and-so. I don't give a fuck what it is. Tell me the story. I want to know the story. And I got Dr. Bob on my Facebook, so I'll bring him on this shit next week and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bob's my guy, man. I tell you what, um, it, it's, it's interesting. You, you have to have... Um, you got to have mentors. You know, if I, if I had to give anyone really young you know some advice seek people out who are doing good things and try to have them mentor you because uh bob weintraub man i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing right now had it not been for bob because what a lot of people don't know is is that when i was implementing the calculus project in brookline i got pushback and and that's what makes it so odd because in Brookline, everywhere you turn, you're seeing people at the time, they were driving around with the Barack Obama stickers on their cars, right? So you think, oh, wow, this is yeah, good. They understand. You know, this is a liberal town. <laughs> they're they're going to love the Cactus Project. This is about closing the achievement gap. Man, I got all types of pushback. And so <clears throat> who was it that, who had my back and, and said, look, this is how Adrian designed the Cactus Project. And this is how it's going to be implemented in Brookline High School. It was Bob Weintraub 
who said this is how it's going to happen because it's the right thing to do and and that is courageous leadership we don't have a lot of courageous leadership anymore we have people who love to say the right things and be politically correct they have the rhetoric they don't have the deeds to match and they want to be liked more than anything and for me i just want to be respected i give respect and i expect it in return if you like me great if you don't okay that's fine i'm always going to do what's right and so he's been very instrumental in this work that i'm doing so i mean that you, you hit the nail on the head because I was talking to one of my friends the other day and, and he he was saying like, damn man, you know, black people is always pulling me down, you know what I'm saying, when I'm trying to do something. He's a black kid and I said, no, that's your black people. It's not my black people. And it has everything to do with your inner circle. The Because, you know, the majority of black is impoverished, people seem to forget that you're only 13% of the United States versus, you know, 80%. So, trust me, there's poor white people. They're all in Florida. Come down, I'll show them to you. And <laughs> when you see that, the mindset is, is a lot different. And, I, and, and that's why I love to bring people that are in my circle in to let them know. I got friends doing commercial real estate. I got friends in Boston. Um, I'm actually two two different groups of people that set up nonprofits that help inner city youth. So a lot of the question I ask when I when I talk to those middler kind of um, white folks, like white older folks, that they ask me, "Why do we fix the problem?" I tell them it's, it's simple. We are trying to fix the problem, but we don't own fucking TV. We don't. Black people don't own BET, Candace Owens. Viacom does. So we don't fucking put on TV. What we want you to see, they put what you want you to see. You think pe people are still protesting now. You don't see it on, on the news right now. They're protesting every day. They protest the violence in Chicago. They protest all the shit. But because it's not being shown, you think it doesn't exist. And, and that's where the issue kind of comes about. And that actually leads me to my next question, which is, do you actually, do you believe that there is um, symbolic empowerment and symbolic oppression? in terms of like oh, Jesus or the movie Black Panther. That, there, there's a lot in between those two. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> exactly. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. No, I mean, symbols are very important. We know that. I mean, you look at what's happening now around the country. You look at statues being uh, taken down. Um, but here's, here's the thing. That, that's only a small piece a small part of what needs to happen um people like to do what's convenient they don't like to do what's tough they don't like to do what's effective you know Martin luther king wrote about it in the letter that he wrote from a birmingham jail if you read his letter he talked about tension <clears throat> you're gonna have tension when things have been the status quo when it's the status quo and it's been this way for so long to uproot that and change it you're gonna have tension and you know reminds me of the song that uh, everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die right everybody wants people to live in harmony and peace but you can't recognize what has been dividing us and separating us for so long and you have to be willing to tear down those barriers so yeah 
you know, I grew up in South Carolina, so the Confederate flag was a big thing. And so it took nine parishioners in Charleston having a worship service in Emanuel Baptist Church. They had to die in order for that flag to come down. And 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 then the governor at the time was Nikki Haley. She takes down the flag and all of a sudden she's a presidential candidate. She's you know, everybody thinks she's courageous. If she was courageous, she would have taken it down before they were killed. You know, she had many opportunities to take it down and she didn't. And so what she was doing was just being convenient, trying to do what's popular. Um and too many people are doing it and they're not focusing on doing what's right but you know i just want to say this this one thing too and that is um you know we were talking about race it doesn't matter you know what your accomplishments are uh you're still susceptible i mean barack obama was the most powerful man in the world and he was the president of the united states and look at how he was treated he was told he wasn't born here even though he was born in hawaii now there's racism behind mm -hmm. that because we've always been other you know basically what the birthers were saying show me your papers and that's what they used to do for black people show me your papers show me your freedom papers so people who don't know their history they don't understand the the symbolism in that going back to what you're saying so black people have to call that out white people have to call that out we have to call out all forms of hate and discrimination and if we don't and we allow it to happen then we're part of the problem i i, I actually own a badge i bought them on ebay before ebay got rid of all the racist stuff that says runaway slave patrol that's how the police started for people that, that don't know i have it um i think that when i buy a mansion eventually then i'm going to make it my door knocker so people understand what we're talking about as soon as you walk in the goddamn door um, I, I think when it comes down to teachers and, and you in particular being a, a black male teacher, I think that over the, the, the time that we go and we encounter black male teachers, it's usually um, not somebody that, and I, I kind of touched on it earlier, that's of your stature, where it's usually somebody that's older, kind of out of shape, not, um, I've had uh, gay male black teachers, not know any offense to gay. I just did a podcast with a gay porn star last week, so there's no there's no uh, animosity towards that at all. I'm dead serious. Um, but I think the scariest thing, and I tell people all the time that the only person that gets the, 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 the only person that gets hired after a white female for the most part is a black female because it fills two minority voids. It is a non-threatening person. Um, for you. How tall are you? Six so you're two. Six two. You know, you, when I met you, you were built up. You might have a beer belly now. I don't know. <laughs> you was dunking on us in class, and then I mean, you was dunking on us on the court, and then you was dunking on us with knowledge, in in in, in the class, in the corridors, and all that. And I think that um, it's like Paul Mooney said. You want? I got a scary movie for you, Stephen. Nigga with a book. And not only are you nigger with a book, but you also dunking on us too. So I think the stature 
it's so terrifying to the mainstream that I don't think you understand that immediately. We're like, yo, Mims fucking dunked on us yesterday. And he's got this smart aspect of him to where I, I can see that when they looked at you, they saw the braces and they said, okay, maybe he's non-threatening. But you're like, no. I'm pushing against everything that you're trying to push through that I feel that is hurting not only my stature, but the stature of you know the people that will come after me, the jobs that are going to come after me, and the opportunities that are going to come after me. So I need to make sure that I look out for everybody that is there because this is not only about me, but this is about the future of the next person that tries to apply for this. They need to understand kind of what's there beforehand. Can I share something with you that actually is, is funny to me now? So after I, after I sued the town and <clears throat> and they settled, from that point on, man, with their whole interview process, every time there was a job opening and people applied, they made sure that they had black finalists. They 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 said we have to document. <laughs> <laughs> the number <laughs> I was laughing I was just like oh so now there's a lot of paperwork now with the process right you gotta start taking down numbers and, and, and everything so I, I I thought that was uh, pretty interesting but you know I, I guess one could look at it and say okay yeah you, you really put it on the radar screen and stuff but you know it was already there um, you know there was a guy named Al Fortune I never met Al Fortune, but if you talk to people who have been familiar with Brookline for the past 50 years, they know who Al Fortune is. Al Fortune was uh, an African-American administrator who had applied for a principalship there in Brookline, and from what I heard, I don't know, from what I heard was, you know, they did him wrong too. Um, so, you know... There'll be other people who will come along and some crazy stuff will happen, but that's just the world. That's just how it is. Um, you know, I can go around kicking rocks or I can take a negative and make it into a positive. And that's what I did. And um, I, I've learned this, too. And I think and I and I when I I mentor a lot of young people and I tell them, I said, look, um, sometimes because I'm a spiritual person too sometimes you know God will bring things into your life that are good that can help you but then he can bring things into your life that might not be so good that might be bad but it's there to help you move out of from from where you need to be mm -hmm. right so I didn't need my time had was up in, in Brooklyn I, it was time for me to move on and you know what? Had this not happened, I probably would still be there. Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot. Sometimes you, you, you're staying there forever and you think like, you know what? I really want to get this done. I really want to accomplish this. And I really want to do this. But you're like, this shit is just so calm. Exactly what you said, it's the curse for a lot of people. And when they talk to me, I try to be as comfortable as I can with being uncomfortable. Because what you're talking about is the curse of complacency. I make this amount of money and everything is good. 
but you keep looking at the mountaintop on TV, you'll never get to the mountaintop being complacent. And sometimes it takes that push, exactly what you're talking about, to go, you know what? All right, forget all that. Um, I got to re-engage. I, I was doing well, but I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. And that push right there, you know, it was like, listen, man, now, now, you know what I'm saying? Who knows where you'd be? You might be a damn full-blown alcoholic now. You'd be making good money, but you'd be a full-blown alcoholic. But now you out, you're happy, you know, you're doing everything you need to do. There's no animosity there. It's just like, man, this is what I'm doing, and, and I enjoy every aspect kind of of what I'm doing now. Um, you got any... In this uh, current Karen climate, I want to know if you have any crazy parent stories, and from a long time ago, because I don't want you to be on TMZ tomorrow. You don't have to build names, but like just the parent coming in and going, "Listen, my kid is supposed to be fucking this," or any of the crazy shit that you can think of. Man, I tell you what, I don't even know where to start, man. I have some of the craziest parent stories. <laughs> No, I'm serious, man. I, I, I've, I've, I, man, I, okay, so I'm going to tell you one. This was crazy. <clears throat> this was the, the, the one thing crazy. So this was after my lawsuit, right? And um, I'm already ticked off, you know, like it, it doesn't take much to like get under my skin. And I'm pretty reserved for the most part. And, Every now and then, you'll, you'll catch me on the wrong day and do the wrong thing, and it triggers some trauma in me, really, you know, mm -hmm. and <laughs> trauma in the sense where, you know, it brings me back to certain things that I just can't deal with. So I'm in my office meeting with, um, with a family, and um, one of my colleagues is in, the, uh, in my office as well. And we're talking. Meanwhile, there's a meeting going on down the hall with um, a guidance counselor and one of my students. I was the, the dean of the student. And this was a, a student who, you know, it had some health issues, it had surgery. and But, you know, he was doing fine. He was transitioning back and, and everything. So his mom and his dad were there for the re-entry meet. It wasn't even a re-entry meeting. It was a meeting about getting him caught up. And this kid was catching up. He was fine. So the meeting that I was in at the time, it wasn't a scheduled meeting. It was like an emergency meeting, something that came up. So um, the guidance counselor, very competent. He was handling his business and stuff. But these parents were like over the top, entitled Brookline parents, right? So I'm there saying my piece, working with this family, talking to him. Man, this guy, and his wife was followed, his wife followed him. He comes up to my door, banging on my door, like the police. That's how hard he was banging. And I was just like, yo, I, I just, I just kind of, I snapped. I said, what the hell? And I got up and I opened the door and I said, I said, what the hell is wrong with you banging on my door like that's exactly what I said to this parent. And he said, he said, you're, you're supposed to be in a meeting with me and my wife and my son. And I said, yeah, and? Well, why aren't you there? 
I said, because I'm here where you see me. And he said, he said, well, my son is very important. I said, I know that. And I said, we're going to take good care of your son. I said, but let me tell you something right now. I said, first of all, I said, don't you ever come knocking on my door like you're the police like that again. I said, just because you pay property taxes and some of your property taxes may cover my salary, that doesn't mean that you can treat me any way that you want to treat me. And, I was, and, and, so, and so he said, oh, why, why are you going to come at me that way? Why has it got to be like that? I said, because that is how it is. You're entitled and you think that you can talk to me mm-hmm. and treat me any way that you want to. And I'm here telling you, you can't. And you also better get stepping. Yeah. And he was just like, what the? I said, yeah. And his, and his wife was just like, come on, dear. Let's go. <laughs> but see, you know, everybody's multifaceted. That's not who I am. I can be that guy. I can be your worst nightmare or I can be your best friend. And every now and then, you know, sometimes people, they can come at you in a way and they can, like, bring that person out. And, and you know, going back to you, right? You know, there were things that going on with you that would bring out a certain side of you. And that probably, and it wasn't necessarily who you were. You were just reacting to your environment. In your situation so that's why I understood and I could relate to you whether you knew I could or not right and so that's why the work I do mentoring young men and young women too um, is to kind of help them navigate things because the world is a lot more complicated now than it's ever been like the world was never this complicated when I was mm-hmm. growing up right and I think you have to be a lot more sophisticated you have to be a lot more cautious and a lot of that is due to social media too um, what you're putting out there you know you can easily get back and it can come back to haunt you and you know there's some decisions out there that you know there's just some lessons you don't want to learn the hard way and so um, that's that's real yeah unfortunately I mean it's it's you're at a point where everybody is in America for the most part, because I do travel a lot and I do this work in other countries. It's like a an instant gratification. Everybody needs instant gratification, and, and, and a, a like on social media does not necessarily trans, translate into success in life. And whatever success is in life is also differs from person to person. Um, actually, I'll send it to you after we're done. I, I created a PowerPoint for actually talking to young men. It's, it's, it's uh, I call it the diving board theory. It's based on different people's idea of what being successful is. And I would then ask kids, you know, what do you feel? Do you want to be successful? And they'll say, of course, everybody, yeah, I want to be successful. And your idea is, okay, well, what is the idea of successful? And I have a picture. I, I talked about it a couple podcasts ago of, of the man who invented Super Soaker and Jay-Z. And Jay-Z is a rapper and the man who invented Super Soaker is a rocket scientist. Black man. Both black men. Um, and at the time, they were both worth 
$500 million. Um, but the idea behind the theory is that you live in a house by yourself. The fe- I'm not by yourself, but you, everybody that's with you, that's the only thing you know. The only time you've ever been in it is in this individual house. The fence is so high that you can't see over it. You have a pool in the backyard that has three diving boards. So you go all to the pool, and it's the best pool you've ever been at in your life. You have diving board number one. You get on it. You dive in. It's the best diving board you've ever been on in your life. You're like, yeah, this is shit, man. As you dive a couple more times, you're like, eh, you know what? I wonder what diving board number two is like. So you ask people that's there. They're like, hey, man. Yeah, diving board number two is a little bit harder. you got to train. you got to get up there and make sure that you get on diving board number two and you go. So you're like, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to train for dive board number two. And get on there. And so you do the training. You get on there. You dive. Dive board number two. You know, it's the best dive you've ever had in your life. At the best pool and the best house you've ever had in your life. There's nothing better than that. In the, in the immortal words of Trump, there's nothing better. You don't understand. <laughs> so when you get on two, you've never seen anything like diving door number two. Let me tell you. <laughs> You start asking people, what's up with that other diving board? Diving board number three is over the fence. It's that high. And they're like, I don't know. Um, All I need is diving board number two. I'm good right here. And you're like, all right, so I got to figure this out on my own. So you train three times as hard as you did for diving board number two. When you get to diving board number three, you climb up on it and get ready to dive, and you can see over the fence. And you see how much more there is than what you know. What you know is these three diving boards in this house. And now you realize why there was nobody to ask about diving board number three because once people saw under the fence, they never ever came back. Because there's so much more than that. And and kind of the biggest part of what I explained to kids is when people said to me, oh, they're looting, they're they're, uh, destroying their own neighborhoods. I said, because they don't fucking know anywhere else. And you don't get that. They can't see over those buildings. And I'm trying to lift you over those buildings so then you can make a decision. If you want to be there still, fine, no problem. But I'm going to show you first and then let you make your decision. Um, so I was talking to a couple people throughout the week, letting them know kind of what was going on through the podcast. And a couple, you know, super tough people said, I wouldn't have taken the settlement. I would have made a point. What do you think about that? They said, what? They said, I wouldn't have taken the settlement. I would have made a point and been fighting them forever. What 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 does that mean, though? I don't even know what that means. I made a, what's the point? I, yeah, I, I don't know. Because for, for the situation for me, it was like different. So for you, it's like, okay, I'll take it. I understood immediately. But for everybody else, it's like, I want to expose every aspect. Like, I guess you're supposed to still be standing out there with picket signs. Man, that's stupid. <laughs> Look. Let me tell you, the people who say stuff like that, they've never, they've never experienced it. They've never gone through it. You know, I had someone tell t- tell me they were just like, and I'm I'm only saying this because it's in the if you if you Google me, it's, it comes up on the internet and stuff. You know, some people say, man, eighty eighty thousand dollars, man, I would have hit them up for a million. I'm just like, really? And see, it's the story I heard was two hundred. <laughs> nah. Well, you know what? Is is it? it there's more. There's more that comes with that. That eighty thousand. You know. I mean, my kids. You know, they can go to school. Um, my son graduated from Brookline High School. My daughter goes to Brookline High School, and you know, I'm not paying anything for that. You know. So, 
it, some it's not always about money you know yeah money's good but you know you, you there's some things that don't necessarily um, materialize in the form of currency that are just as important because just like what how you started off you know your podcast talking about Brooklyn Brooklyn is not a perfect place but I've traveled around the country and I've visited multiple schools and gone to multiple school districts Brookline is better than 50% of the schools that are out there and so and I look at the experience that my daughter's having she loves Brookline so you know I'm not going to judge a district and I'm not going to judge the people who work in the district based off of some bad experiences I had with a handful of people um, but you know here, here, here's the thing you gotta know when to fight and you gotta know how to fight and the, for, for someone to not know the details and know the backdrop and know the story to make a comment like that that shows me they don't know anything. Yeah, but the, I mean, that because, has to do with everybody every day on social media. And I attribute it to a statement, and I thought about it in the middle of the night the other day, and I woke up. I said, I got to write this shit down because that was amazing. Um, that sometimes you look crazy to people when you're disappointed and you're angry, but they don't realize that you're angry because you have strived towards a level and you have accomplished a level that is not being given to you at that point. And you get home and you're frustrated and people that are not putting forth the same effort that you're putting forth look at you and go, why are you so angry, man? Be happy with what you have. Colin Kaepernick should be happy that he's in the NFL, not realizing that you're working your ass off to get this doctorate degree. You're working your ass off to be a top-of-the-line NFL player. So that's where your disappointment comes from. It comes from the disappointment that there's literally nothing other than you saying this that's preventing me from getting where I should be, where I worked to be, where I gave my blood, sweat, and tears to be where I need to be. And it can drive you crazy because you're like, how have I done everything that I'm supposed to do that the next man would do and be where he should be but I'm not where I should be. But but see, here's here's what people gotta understand though. When you, you, you when you're faced with adversity, you got one or two things that you can do. You can either stand up for yourself and fight, or you can duck and you can run. Mm -hmm. Right? Either decision you make, there's a consequence. And so the thing is, is for me. Whatever I do, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make it easy for anybody, right? Um, if I'm gonna go down, I'm not gonna lay down. If I go down, I'm gonna go down fighting. But the the comfort that I have in fighting and standing up for myself is that I know that I'm right. I don't worry about anything else as long as I know that what I'm doing is right. And you have to also know how to fight. Because I've seen people who have gone through similar situations that I've gone through, and they didn't handle it well. If you if you look at what I went through in, in Brooklyn, you will not find anything written on the internet necessarily about me coming out 
bashing people, yelling, screaming, or doing anything like uh, making disparaging remarks about the, you know, I, I didn't say anything bad about the superintendent or, or a Dub Coleman or whatever. I kept my mouth shut. You know what? I filed my complaint with um, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. I swore to it. So if anybody wanted to hear what I had to say, all they had to do was read the mm -hmm. document. I don't have to say anything else. That document speaks for itself, and I'm going to let the process run its course. And then, because I know what's right, I know that I'm going to ultimately get what I want. And I did. I got everything that I want. But I've seen people who don't know when to accept that they've gotten they something. They overvalue the situation. They, 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 yeah, they overestimate. Look, I was in a... a a, a discrimination lawsuit not long after I moved to uh, Boston, right? And it went on for three years. And the day that we were going to court, um, they wanted to settle. And <laughs> the amount that I settled for wasn't what I was asking for. It was lower. And I was so mad at that time because I'd been mistreated that I said, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. And you know what, you know what my lawyer said to me? And she was smart, man. She told me, she said, look, she said, uh, if you don't take this settlement and you want to fight this, I'll do it. She said, but ask yourself this question. And I want you to think about something. The people who are on that jury, they're coming from all walks of life. Nobody wants to have a jury that making a decision for any case. He's, she said, that's why they want to settle. Mm -hmm. So she said, this is taking you three years to get to this point. How can you deal with the fact that if you decide not to take the settlement, right, and you fight this and you lose, you could have walked away with something that you could have turned into you know yeah more money. exactly it's like who, it's like who wants to be a millionaire <laughs> it's like you should you should have stopped the sixty four thousand. what are you doing you know you couldn't answer that next question yeah, yeah yeah so it was just like you know what i said man that's a good way to think about it i could be done right now it's not i'm, I'm getting what i'm getting is good it's not what i what i asked for it's less than what i asked for but i can live with it because i'm good i'm i moved on and so I said, all right, we'll settle. So what I did, and this is crazy, man. This is how this is how things work out. So I, I get my I get myself. Um, everything's over, man. I felt like a weight was lifted. You ever heard of, you you heard of Krispy Kreme, right? You down yeah, south. They still have it here. Yeah, it started in North mm -hmm. Carolina. It started out as a privately held company. Not long after that, my settlement, Krispy Kreme went public, and I took the money and bought as many Krispy Kreme stock as I could. Stocking Krispy Kreme, you know that Krispy Kreme, because see, I grew up in the South, man. Those donuts, it's just like legalized mm -hmm. crack. Oh yeah, listen, I told somebody the other day. I said, listen, have you had? The, I was like, yeah, Krispy Kreme. They were like, yeah. I was like, no, like the one when the lights on. They were like, no. And I brought my daughter right there that day. And she was like, oh, shit. And I was like, yeah, this ain't the one they sell at Walmart. 
man, people people lose their mind over that. And I said, you know what? People in the Northeast, they haven't experienced Krispy Kreme. The stock is going to go through the roof. Yeah, Atkins right? diet. <laughs> so hey, Atkins messed it up. There are a few things that messed it up, right? So, you know, they had they had an IPO. Um, you know, to get an IPO and stuff, to get in like that, man, you got to have, like, a lot of money. I didn't have that mm-hmm. much money. But what I did when it went to the after when it went to the open market, and I was right there at my computer. I learned how to trade and everything, and I got an E Trade account. I bought as many of those Krispy Kreme stocks as I could get. You know that stock split? I think it split twice, and I made <laughs> I made more than the money that I was asking for in the mm-hmm. lawsuit took that money and you know built a house and you know the rest is history now the reason why I tell that story and the point that I'm making is is that what the lawyer said it was something's the one of the some of the best advice I ever received and it's you know wait a minute you've been fighting for three years and you got a chance to to move on you know you don't have to you know get a home run maybe you just need to get a double mm-hmm. right and then let someone else bring you in for the run <laughs> so you know it, it all worked out in the end I, th- I think you know now people they get caught up in their feelings and their emotions and I try not to do that don't make decisions based off of your emotions see if I decided to fight that case that first one that would have been a decision based off of emotion. And you have to separate emotion from a lot of your the decisions that you make, and too many people get caught up it's in. It's funny that, what you, you what know. you just said. I have um, I have an app, and I've been developing it for two years. And somebody asked me the question. They said, "What if somebody just came up tomorrow and offered you, you know, two hundred thousand dollars for it?" And I was like, "I would take it." And they were like, "What if they turned it into fifty million?" I was like, "I'm not worried about that because." I have so many ideas and the 200,000 could be the catalyst for me to act on every single one of those ideas and it's basically exactly what you said to me in different words because you know as your anger and your time drove what could have been you know a, a decision that was a detriment to you you were able to kind of get over that emotion and turn it into what you wanted anyway you know what I'm saying and, 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 and even now even if you didn't get any money the push was enough to push you into your happiness and your happiness is more important than anything and your mental health is more important than anything. I remember when I was um, at Brookline High, I was asking a question, I was talking to some kid and I was talking about, well, yeah, these racist cops, blah, blah, blah. And, and Malcolm Cawthorn, and I'll say his name because I remember this shit to this day, said, you're not black and I'm darker than Malcolm Cawthorn's ass. So I said, what? He's like, you're not, he said it again, you're not black. I said, well, can you tell the fucking police that? Because they don't know that apparently. <laughs> but Mims, um <laughs> Please tell them, you know what I'm saying? You know what? It was funny. When you when you started out you said you got pulled over you got pulled over fifty times. Before I was twenty one. Yeah. Before you were twenty one. I was like, 
damn, your light skin that no. got pulled over 50 times. Imagine that I would have got pulled over 100 <laughs> So, yo, somebody said to me just like this. They go, well, you look Spanish. I said, what does that mean? They just By the stereotype, they just think I stole the car instead of killing somebody. Like, it don't matter what the hell they think I am. I got pulled over. There was a time a cop pulled me over and said, where are you going? I said, home. And he's like, where's that? And I pointed out the window right there. And he was like, get out of here. And I was like, why did you pull me over? <laughs> why did you pull me over? <laughs> But, um, Mims, man, you, not only were you a great teacher, but you obviously still are, because I learned a lot tonight, and I'm definitely glad that I had you on my podcast, and, um, I'm glad I reached out to you, because, man, I didn't know you were doing all that, and I'm going to have Alex on next week, and I definitely want to tie y'all together, because you guys are both doing non-profit aspects, he's doing a lot of STEAM stuff, and, um, a lot of my other groups, Limitless Athletics is doing a STEAM program at, um... They do at the Apple Store and bring kids there, and they do a lot of STEM stuff. So we can get your people there. You guys can go vice versa. I know Alex does a summer program at, at MIT, so you guys can definitely, you know, the the idea obviously is the unified aspect of us building a circle that has every aspect of everything. I don't care if it's education, athletics, or whatever, but we all definitely gotta count on each other and make sure that this uplifting continues the same way that you uplift kids we want to make sure that we do it for one another absolutely man and um it's so good i'm glad you reached out to me uh i haven't seen you in a long time i see that you're doing well you're not surprised at all um keep keep uh speaking truth to power and keep doing what you're doing man Thank you for everything, man. My, my For some reason, my happiness looks like I'm a millionaire to everybody on Facebook. I'm well, just happy, and I control my time, and, and that's exactly what he's telling you. He's happy, and it looks like even he has a doctorate. I don't have that, but I'm still happy. <laughs> well, you know what, though? I mean, when, when people, you, you, you are wealthy. I'm, I'm wealthy, but... You can you you don't necessarily have to measure wealth based off of what you have in your bank account, right? You can be wealthy because you're in good health and you have good circle, you have a good group of people around you, you know. And you were talking about there earlier about you know surrounding yourself and getting in the right group. And you know, someone said this to me one time, and I said, "Wow, that's pretty profound." And it was, you know, your network defines your net worth. So, you know, if you're hanging around, you know, constantly, you know, they're going to bring down your net worth, right? Mm -hmm. So you surround yourself with high net worth individuals. And that's not necessarily people who have, you know, a bunch of zeros after, you know, uh, their their bank account. Mm -hmm. But it can be net worth in the work that they do to uplift and help others and having a positive message. So. You are wealthy, brother. Can I borrow fifty thousand? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for everything, man. So I'll send you the update on everything. Um, but man, right. this was even more than I thought it would be. Um, you definitely delivered above and beyond. Thank you for everything. Thanks Have for a great me. night. Be well. <laughs>